Welcome to the Wantrepreneur to Entrepreneur podcast, your source for everything you need to go from unfocused wantrepreneur to action-taking, money-making entrepreneur. Now, your host, Brian Lofermento. Hey there, it's Brian, and as always, happy Featured Friday. I'm so excited to be bringing to you today the second half of my interview with Jim Beach. Now, the first half of the interview with Jim Beach was episode 20. It came out two Fridays ago. If you haven't listened to it, don't worry. You don't necessarily have to listen to that one in order to listen to today's episode because the first half of the interview was really general entrepreneurship stuff where Jim talked about how anyone Literally anyone can be an entrepreneur. How you don't need a business idea to be an entrepreneur. And Jim has some amazing insight about how he started his first business by basically stealing the idea, legally, he didn't do anything wrong, by basically stealing the idea and improving upon the idea of another business. And third, Jim talked about and dispelled a lot of the entrepreneurial myths. Like, do you actually have to have passion for the business that it is that you're starting? So that's what we talked about in the first half of this interview, but today you are really going to see the genius behind Jim Beach. So Jim is the guy that CNN has called the Simon Cowell of small business. This is a guy that's really highly regarded within entrepreneurial circles, and he has grown multiple million dollar businesses. So in this second half of the interview, I'm going to really dive deep into Jim's brain to see exactly how he grew a $12 million in revenue business, as well as how he got millions of dollars in financing from angel investors. So I'm not going to delay any more time. Let's jump in. If you want to listen to the first half of the interview, it's episode 20. You can find it wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast interview, or you can head on over to the wantrepreneurshow.com. But either way, I know that you're going to enjoy the second half of my interview with Jim Beach. Let's dive in. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's kind of how I fell into entrepreneurship. Basically, I started when I was too naive to understand the the struggles of what owning a business means. Exactly. Exactly. I had no idea what I was doing. And when someone told, you know, two, two or three years later, someone asked me, so what's it feel like to be an entrepreneur? And I was like, what? A what? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I had never heard of an angel investor. I had never heard of venture capital. I had no clue that people would just give you money to start a business. I thought the only way to do it was with the money I had in my pocket, which at that point was a credit card with a $4,000 limit on it, which I used up. Yeah, love it. So, I mean, that that could be scary for some people to start a business before they're so-called ready, which let's face it, no one's ever ready. So you grew that business to millions in revenue but there, it couldn't have been that easy. I mean, what were some of the early obstacles that you faced? Well, you know, every year we had a huge obstacle to overcome. Year one, the big obstacle was operations, you know, just figuring out what, what are we going to do with these kids, you know? And I remember the very first day we invited the parents to leave and they all left. And we were sitting there with a room full of 24 kids. And I was like, what do we do now? You know, and we had to write curriculum. And we actually drove to Stanford from Atlanta in a truck full of computers and TVs and VCRs and all of that. And a huge portion of the first year was just figuring out the operational issues. You know, how do you make kids go to bed at night? Uh, how do you make kids not sneak out in the middle of the night? How do you make them take showers? You know, how do you keep all these computers running? 
Year two, it became a marketing issue. We expanded into four new markets. I think we picked up UCLA, Georgetown, Emory, and SMU in Dallas. And so our big challenge in year two was marketing. Year three was a HR issue when we realized, oh boy, we have 26 camps this summer. We're going to need 150 employees. How do you find 150 kids that can teach C++? You know, where, where do you find 150 kids that will work for 200 bucks a week that can teach C++? You know, so we had HR issues. And then year four, we had dramatic financial issues. And we did end up in huge debt. We had a financial uh crisis and ended up in about $8 million of debt. And by that point, the company was at about 80, 85 locations or something like that. And we just made some horrible growth decisions. We grew faster than we should have. We were trying to grow as fast as we can. So we went from two camps to six camps to 26 camps to 58 camps to 85 camps. And then we also added an online education division when bricks and mortar became less sexy in 98, 99. We added international. We added programs for the boys and girls clubs where we managed all 5,000 boys and girls clubs across the country. We added curriculum development for K through 12 school systems. And so we just grew too fast and had massive uh, you know, financial issues there in 99, 2000. And that's when I discovered what venture capital was. I had to go out and raise about $8 million to pay off the debt for the growth that we had already had. You know, so normally with venture capital, you say, hey, I'd like to get a bunch of your money. And with that money, I'm going to grow. We sort of were stupid and we reversed the equation and said, hey, I'd like a bunch of your money to pay off my existing debt because I've already grown. You know, so we proved that we could do it. We were able to execute it. But every year along the way, we had a significant issue. And it was almost like an MBA class. You take an MBA class on HR, you take one in marketing, you take one in finance. We went through huge issues in every one of those. And it wasn't until year six or seven that we were good at all of them. Great. So the thing I like about your story is you're a big fan of bootstrapping as well as you've experienced what raising money is like. So yes. talk to us about how things changed once you had to raise that VC funding and would you do that the funding route again? Well, you know, I'd love to be able to go back in time and do a more organic growth model, but you know, we can't play that game. And I'm not a big fan of venture capital. I, I don't like it. I don't like what VC does to a business. It dilutes the business. Uh, it brings in people who have different interests at heart, you know, and eventually our company was sold because the venture capitalists wanted to exit, right? They wanted to make their profit, and the only way they're going to make a profit is by selling the business. So I'm not a big fan of venture capital. Uh, I do realize that it's necessary a lot of the time. But one of the things that does bother me is when all you're doing is raising venture capital. Go ahead and start the business and get going up and running get uh, customers as fast as you can, prove that the model either works or doesn't work. If it doesn't work, pivot. And I hate that word pivot. Uh, it, to me, it means something else, like we effed up. But, you know, go ahead and build the business and worry about the, the fundraising when you've proven the model really works. And 
I, I'm just not a fan of venture capital. I do think they are vultures. And every single venture capitalist that I've ever met says, oh, no, we're the other kind. We're the good kind. And then I talk to some of their client portfolio companies, and the portfolio companies are, no, no, those guys are, are jerks. You know, uh, I'm just not a fan. I don't like it because their interest is not in line with your interest. And I understand that they're needed sometimes, but a lot of great businesses have been started by the bootstrap method by lean. Uh, and so raising venture capital is the last thing that I would do now if I, if I could uh, avoid it. And, you know, it's wonderful with the creation and the advent of crowdfunding, venture capital has become less of a necessity. There are other ways to do it now. And crowdfunding is a great example of that. You know, you can do a crowdfunding campaign where you only give away product and you don't give away equity. And I just love that idea. And so that even just reinforces my belief that uh, raising venture capital would be the last thing that I would do. Excellent. That's great insight. And that's a, a message that I totally buy into, especially on Kickstarter. I mean, today we see businesses raising millions of dollars on Kickstarter, which is incredible and a great source of funding. All of them. There are, you know, there's a platform for just about every industry now. If you're raising money in the medical space, there is a medical crowdfunding platform. Go there. Those people are going to be your best investors. They're probably doctors or hospital administrators. Uh, if you're raising money in the consumer space and you're going to be in retail, there's a crowdfunding platform for that. You know, I, I love Kickstarter. I love Indiegogo. But I would use one of the more uh, smaller, very specific crowdfunding platforms first. All right. Great advice. Great advice there. So let's talk about risk now because that is one thing that holds a lot of entrepreneurs back. How can entrepreneurs eliminate or hedge the risk of starting their own business? Well, you know, I've already told my risk story there. I don't think you should start a business with more money than you can afford to lose, a thousand bucks. And people go, oh, you can't start a business with a thousand bucks. Well, I did. I know lots of people who have. And I'll throw out one statistic. 430 of the Fortune 500 companies were started with under $5,000 of contemporaneous money. So if wow. they started in 1930, they did it with less than $5,000 of 1930 money. You know, so don't tell me it can't be done. You know, Dell was bootstrapped. Of course, he raised money later, but he had a very successful business before he raised money. So risk is something that we should really try to eliminate. And one thing that I have learned is that entrepreneurs take a lot of risk. Successful serial entrepreneurs take no risk. And they do anything they can to eliminate the risk from the equation. Either they use other people's money or they get customers in advance, which is what I did, or they figure out a way to bootstrap the model and it can be done. There are lots of great examples of bootstrapped businesses. About two years ago, I challenged my wife to start a business, and she was able to do it for $535. And in the first year, she made $68,000 profit. Wow. It's an incredible business. And if what I tell you. What business is it, Jim? Well, it's the least sexy business on earth. If I tell you what it is, you're going to go, oh, that's not very exciting. <laughs> that's really boring. But what she does is she sells stuff on Amazon. 70% of the items that Amazon sends out, they never owned. 
other people own them and act as their fulfillment agents. So my wife buys things at wholesale, sends it to Amazon, you buy it, it arrives at your house in an Amazon box, and my wife sold it for retail and doubles her money. It's the most easy business on earth, and it meets all of my rules. We have no passion for it. It's absolutely 100% creativity less, and it only risked $535 of her money. But I'll tell you what we are very passionate about. $68,000, $68,000, you know, that's easy to be passionate about. And so uh, there are too many examples of people succeeding without taking risk for me to believe that you need to take the risk. Maybe you just either need to change the business or the model. And a lot of times I have people come up to me, and one of my favorite stories is a guy wanted to start a three-story bar. And on the bottom, the bar was going to rotate clockwise. And on the middle, it was going to rotate counterclockwise. And on the third floor, it would rotate both directions, and it would switch every hour. And that was the whole thing. And I was like, why? You know, what's the power going to cost for that place? And why do people want to go where they're rotating? You know, I mean, I don't want to, I'm going to be drinking anyway. I'm going to be getting dizzy anyway. And then you're going to make me spin? You know, what about my, I have a brother-in-law named Joey. He started a bar for $5,000. It was at a old barber shop. He took the barbershop chairs out and you could still see the big ring on the floor where the chair used to be. It had a linoleum floor, exposed metal rafters. And the first weekend that he operated, he couldn't afford a keg. He only sold, you know, beers in cans and he would buy it by the case at the grocery store. But you know what? He made enough money to stay in business and open up the second weekend. And now, 15 years later, he owns half of a college town, including the parking lot next door to the college stadium, where he makes thousands of dollars every weekend for people paying for parking. He bootstrapped a bar. About 10 years ago, someone came in across the street from him and built one of those huge bars with the big brass brewing equipment. They spent $3 million to get it up and running. Brian, how many beers do you have to sell to pay off a $3 million investment? I can't even do that math. <laughs> and my brother-in-law, Joey, started a bar for $5,000. Don't tell me it can't be done. I'll show you someone who did it. Yeah, no, that, that's incredible. Bootstrapping is, is one of the hottest trends in entrepreneurship. And it's going to be one that sticks around because it enables guys like you and I to just start something out of nothing and build a prosperous business. The only thing I would disagree with is not a trend. It's the way people did it a thousand years ago. It's the way they did it a hundred years ago. And we broke entrepreneurship in the 60s and 70s when we introduced venture capital. When I forgot the uh Oh, I forgot the name of the first VC firm out in the Valley, but I think they, they ruined entrepreneurship for a lot of people by introducing this idea that, oh, you're supposed to go raise $5 million and then you get an office and then you hire a secretary and then you get a car lease and then you buy a $12,000 telephone system and then you start your business. Hell, you've spent a million dollars before you've even sold anything. And so that's just the wrong way to go about it. The you know bootstrapping is the way it's been done for millennium, and it just it's not as sexy as raising venture capital. You know you don't get your name in the newspaper or on Reddit.com or in you know 
you know, Entrepreneur Magazine for bootstrapping. It's just not a very sexy story, but it's the smart story. Yeah, love it. I totally agree. So one of the things that entrepreneurs often feel that is in their way is that they've got a full-time job. Now, part of hedging their risks could be having the safety net of a job on the side. How do you feel about that approach? Or does the safety net make them complacent, slow their growth? What are your thoughts on that? I would keep your job until you get fired. And I would start smoking cigarettes as well. I want all of my entrepreneurs to become smokers so that they can take two or three smoke breaks every day when they actually go out and get on their cell phone and they're doing business and they're pretending to smoke, but they're really out there doing business every day. I love the safety of someone else paying for my health insurance. I like the idea of knowing that my mortgage is going to be paid. Uh, a business that's doing $50,000 a year in revenue does not require full-time effort. It shouldn't. If it does, you're not doing it right. And so I wholeheartedly say keep your day job as long as possible. My wife, who I told you made $68,000 in her first year, she's a computer programmer. She works full-time for a local hospital doing computer programming. She cooks dinner every night. She takes care of our four-year-old baby, and we had enough time to make another baby on the side. We have another baby uh, also. She's able to do all of that and run a business. So don't tell me that you have to quit your job. Again, it's a way of increasing your risk. If you keep your day job until your boss figures out what you're doing, it is the ultimate way to reduce risk. And entrepreneurship is about reducing risk so you sleep well at night. You know, if you're waking up in the middle of the night all sweaty and you've sweated through your pillow, you're doing something wrong. And it means you've introduced risk into your life when you didn't need to do it. And so this is why I think it's so cool to be an entrepreneur with no risk, no creativity, no passion. When you follow that formula, you don't have to quit your day job. It's a whole different way of doing it that it's, again, it's not as sexy as raising a bunch of venture capital and being on the cover of Inc. Magazine. And it takes longer, but you end up owning 100% of the business and you didn't expose your family to that horrible risk in the process. All right, a great message there and one that I'm sure applies to a lot of Summit listeners right now and viewers, because a lot of people, that, that's kind of the barrier and they feel like they can't get started until they leave their job. But as you said, don't wait to leave your job milk it, if you will, and use that to your advantage. Totally. You know, my wife works hard all weekends. She works a little bit at work. I know she steals an hour or two uh, at lunch and things like that. Uh, she works hard when she comes home. We put the babies to bed at eight o'clock and she'll work until midnight uh, a lot of nights. Uh, she takes days off from time to time. And instead of going on vacation, she actually works on her business. But you know what? It's made her uh, a really successful entrepreneur. She's got a great business now. Uh, it's really helped our family financially. And the coolest thing is, is that it's changed her personality. Year one, we would go to trade shows and she would say, go, go talk to that person, you know, because she's really shy. Don't go, go talk to that person for me. Year two, she would go up to the person and you know, talk to them by herself. Year three, I didn't even accompany her to the trade show. She's so secure in herself now and has learned that she can accomplish things that has changed her personality. She's become infinitely more self-confident and it's just an amazing thing to watch a, a woman in her 20s and 30s 
become confident for the first time in their lives. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, love it. That's excellent. I mean, there's so many great entrepreneurial stories out there. And being an entrepreneur is more than just running a business. It's a lifestyle. It's a mindset. And it's a choice. So That's right. totally agreed. Now, one of my favorite stories about your entrepreneurial journey is a bet that you made with your class that ended up into a profitable business. Tell our viewers about that. Yes. Well, I, I taught at a local downtown university for nine years. I was the entrepreneurship professor, small p, no PhD. And one of the first semesters, I had just sold my business with 700 employees. And so my head was really big. And I was saying, this entrepreneurship stuff can be really easy. And it was an MBA class. And they said, no, Jim, it's pretty hard. I've read about it. And I was like, no, it's pretty easy. And they're like, no, it's pretty hard. And I was like, no, it's pretty easy. And I'll even bet you. And so I made a bet with my class that I could start a business that semester, make it 100% profitable, repay all startup capital before the end of the semester, and if I failed, they would all get A's. And to make it even more interesting, I bet them that they could choose the country and the industry that I would start the business in. Well, this was right after 9-11, and so they thought it would be funny if I had to start a business in Pakistan, which at that point was on the terrorism watch list. And they also thought it would be funny if I had to start a business in the furniture industry, because the week before I had done a speech on how the furniture industry is the worst industry in the world, solid 2% profit margin industry, and it was just a horrible place to start. And so they bet me, and I had three and a half months to start a successful Pakistani furniture company, or they all got A's. Well, again, I applied my rules, and this is actually when my rules were starting to formulate in my mind. First rule, no creativity. So I learned what Pakistan is good at, and we all know that. We all know that Pakistan is really good at making Persian rugs, oriental carpets, those sort of things. And so I was like, okay, we know that. And I remembered back into my past, I'd been to a flea market in Santa Barbara, and I saw a piece of luggage. It was you know, just a weekend bag that someone had taken a, a carpet and cut up and used the, the carpet remnants as the fabric for this weekend bag. And I was like, hey, there we go. Let's copy, borrow, and steal that idea. Again, there's our creativity rule. What if we made furniture that was nothing other than a old, gorgeous Persian oriental rug cut up and made into a piece of furniture? So we would send kids out to flea markets in Karachi, Pakistan. They would take pictures, put it up on Dropbox or something like that, and I would pick out the carpets. They would go back into the flea market. We then would take them into a factory in Pakistan and make beautiful, old-fashioned, George Washington-type armchairs, you know, the beautiful high-back chairs with the big arms and stuff, the type of chair that you would see next to a brown, distressed leather sofa at a ski lodge in Aspen, uh, right next to the big fireplace with the dry stack stone. And that was our product. We made American-looking furniture with the fabric as a 100-year-old Persian rug. And we were able to import that product into the United States, including shipping for about $450. And we were able to sell them for $1,600, $1,800, $2,000 each because each chair was an individual work of art. Each chair was a brand new, gorgeously created chair, but the fabric was already soft. It had been walked on for 100 years. And so it was subtle. 
and very, very comfortable to sit on. And we were very successful with that business selling uh, very new chairs, very well built, but with just old timey fabric on them. And it was very successful, a gorgeous product. Um, you can probably go online and if you type in timeless chair, um, you can see the, a whole bunch of the, the products that we made. We had 50 or 50, 60 different looking chairs. You know, some were bright red with the medallion right in the back, and some had patterns that we would make five or six matching chairs out of for a dining room set or things like that. But I was able to win the bet. The first order was only 26 chairs, and over half of them were pre-sold before they arrived in the United States with about a month and a half left before the end of the semester. Wow. Uh, so I was able to win the bet and I actually made that same bet 12 semesters in a row and never lost. And that's when my rules really started percolating to the top. There's nothing special about creativity. Start with under $5,000 and I could care less about selling chairs. All I want to do is make money. And I am, and I'll be very honest with you, I'm passionate about making money because it allows me to go to Disney and give my kids these things they like to wear called clothes and to put that stuff on the table called food so that we don't you know, starve to death. And so I'm passionate about making money. And I know that sounds crass and may really insult some people. You know, Some people may think that sounds horrible, but I like to make money. Love it. That's a message that I think everyone on the <laughs> summit can definitely agree with. I hope so. If you're if you're listening to this summit and you don't like to make money, you should just go ahead and go somewhere else. <laughs> Hang up and go to a a, a green uh, gas free world convention or something. <laughs> Love it, Jim. You're you're really putting my my listeners and the audience <laughs> in their place. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, I am Simon Cowell. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So we're coming up on almost an hour already. It's one of the quickest hours of my life. I can honestly say that. Some great advice. You've told people why entrepreneurs should be smokers at their day jobs, <laughs> how they can hedge their risks, how they don't need passion, don't need creativity necessarily to stop them in their pursuit of becoming entrepreneurs. But what's the one piece of advice that you would give people to go from, let's say, five figures in revenue to six figures in revenue? And how can people get to the seven-figure mark in revenue with our new business? Well, I want to throw out two things. We haven't really talked about execution. We sort of did at the beginning. You have to do it better than anyone else is doing it. So as I said, if you're going to start a, well, a WordPress uh, development company, be the guy that answers the phone and solves the problem right then. Don't be the guy who says, I'll get to it next week. Don't charge $50 or $100 to change one picture because it's a little bit too big. Just be the guy who does it for free. Execute better than everyone else. Again, would you rather go to Clark Crest Resort in Connecticut or Stanford? You know, it's, it's a huge, huge issue. I'd execute better than you do. And because of that, I am more successful, right? That's what it comes down to. And so if you can execute better, you're going to outperform. And so focus entirely. Don't focus on the creativity, the risk, the, the passion. Focus on execution. Be passionate about superior execution. And I think that's a huge thing. Number two, have the best pitch out there. So if I'm doing a business, I have a pitch that will make you cry. You know, so my pitch is not we have a really cool summer camp at Stanford and MIT. You should come to it. What about this pitch? 
Imagine a child that's unhappy and has never had a good group of friends before. I take that child and show them that they're the smartest person in the room and they're cool. And all of a sudden I give them a best friend. I make them smile for the first time in their entire life. That's what I do. To a parent, a parent starts to cry when they hear that. If you have an unhappy kid that's not a cheerleader or not on the football team, and I tell you I'm going to give your kid a best friend, and I'm going to make your kid feel secure, you don't care what the price is. Because my pitch is so good that I, I don't care. Sign me up. You're going to make my kid happy, my kid that's a little bit dorky and a little bit unhappy, and says, Mommy, I don't have any friends. You're going to give that kid a friend? Sign me up. And then another example of that, you mentioned my McGraw-Hill book. You know, it's almost impossible to get a book published these days. You hear stories about people sending out 200 letters and getting 200 rejections. I sent out one letter to get my book published to a company called McGraw-Hill. Two weeks later, they said yes, because my pitch was so good. I want to write a book that proves that entrepreneurship has got nothing to do with creativity, risk, and passion. They wrote back and said, really? You can prove that? And I said, yes, I can. They said, do it. Because my pitch was so counterintuitive, so out there, that they were like, that book will sell. If you can prove that, and I was able to show them you know, through a conversation similar to this, that I can make a really good case. I might not prove it 100%, but I'll get 99% close. They were like, yes, we will publish that book. So instead of having to send out 200 pitches, I sent out one to one of the most prestigious publishers in the world. And they said yes two weeks later. That tells you how important a good pitch can be, right? So if you focus on executing the daylights out of it and making a pitch that's just so awesome that people want to hear more about it, I tell you my pitch and you're like, Okay, you've got to defend that. Tell me how. If I can make a pitch that's so sexy, people go, I want to hear the defense of that. You've already won. You've already sold the product. If a mother calls and says, yeah, it sounds like you're describing my child. My child isn't happy, doesn't have friends. What's your credit card number, ma'am? Because <laughs> I've already made the sale. So those are my two pieces of advice. Execute the daylights out of it and make sure you have a fantastic pitch that uh, – resonates with someone so deeply that it automatically guarantees a sale. And those pitches exist. And actually, my next book is 14 models using famous rock star songs like John Lennon's Imagine, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, Kanye West, Stronger, Johnny Cash, A Boy Named Sue, an R.E.M. song, a Leonard Skinner song. And each one of those songs creates a perfect elevator pitch for you to use to sell your business, to sell product, or to raise money. And that book will be coming out in about a year. Awesome. That is great news. And I'm sure everyone will be anxiously awaiting that. Nailing your pitch is one of the hardest skills in business. So thanks for not only your examples, but we're anxiously awaiting the release of that book. It's called Rock Stars in an Elevator. I think it'll be a fantastic one. All right. We can't wait. So Jim, it has been an absolute pleasure. Where can our listeners and viewers learn more about you and see what you're up to? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Entrepreneur Jim. And you can go uh, to School for Startups. We have about 80 hours of videos teaching everything we know about entrepreneurship. And I have a daily radio show called schoolforstartupsradio.com. And you can listen to me talking with 
cool entrepreneurs uh, every day talking about these same topics, creativity, risk, and passion. Those are the best places. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure, and we are thrilled to have you as part of the 2015 I Am Summit. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right, so that does it with my two-part interview with Jim Beach. Great guy, amazing entrepreneur, and a very colorful personality, I'm sure you saw during the course of this interview. So that's our Featured Friday episode this week. Next week, I'll be coming at you again with three brand new episodes, Mindset Monday, Strategy Wednesday, and another episode of Featured Friday next week. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to download the Wantrepreneur to Entrepreneur Toolkit, which contains some of my best training videos, a free copy of my book that you can get your hands on, and so much more to help you get started in growing and launching your business. So if you haven't downloaded the Wantrepreneur to Entrepreneur Toolkit, just head on over to thewantrepreneurshow.com and you can get it right away. Until next week, have a good weekend and keep hustling. Thanks for listening to the Wantrepreneur to Entrepreneur podcast with your host, Brian Lofermento. For show notes and to get a free copy of Brian's book, visit us online at thewantrepreneurshow.com.